It's Tuesday, 5th of December, and welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Markets Call. We have a fantastic call for you planned today. We're going to be joined by Anjan Vinod, who is a VP at Parify, one of the oldest crypto funds in the space. We're going to be discussing real-world assets, modular versus monolithic, deep in, stable coins, and much, much more. Alongside Anjan, we're going to have George, who's going to run us through a market update, and David, who will run us through some important data we have coming out this week on the macro side of things, as well as his current thoughts on the market. We are sending our best wishes to Greg and to Sid, who are both a little under the weather this week, but we'll hope to be back next week. Some quick housekeeping. If you want to read all of David and the team's fantastic research, please scan the QR code or click on the link in the show notes to check out the research, which is free of charge. And don't forget to like and subscribe, whether you're on YouTube, Spotify, whatever the platform is, please like and subscribe. That is how other people hear about the content we're putting together. But let's get straight into it. Anjan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ben. Glad to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, we are very happy to have you here. So can you start with a little bit about what your background is and what your role is at Parify? Sure. Um, yeah, so a little bit about my background. So uh, I'm on the investment team here at, uh, at, at Parify Capital. So Parify is, a, is an investment firm that's focused exclusively on the blockchain space. We focus on token, equity, and, and quantitative strategies across our, our different funds. Um, I've been at Parify now for more than four and a half years, so been through multiple uh, market cycles, as I'm sure many of you have as, as, as well. Um, and I come from more on the strategy, ops, and, and research side, um, you know, in, in, in the blockchain space. So, yeah, excited to be here and a uh, ton of interesting topics to talk about. Yeah, let's 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 start with a slightly spicy one. Um, and obviously, you've been in the, the firm for and a half years. That certainly makes you a crypto OG and you've, you've certainly seen a lot. Um, I guess if we were to go back four and a half years now, we were probably trading, we probably saw a 3K candle in BTC, um, which is uh, an order of magnitude lower than, than where we are now, at least. So, yeah, you've certainly, certainly seen some things. Now, to that first conversation, there's been a lot of talk this year, especially with the resurgence of Solana around modular versus monolithic chains. I'm curious, you guys at Parafile, like, how do you think about it? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's a really, you know, we could have a whole podcast just on just just on this debate. I would say there is, uh, when you look at how the market perceives monolithic versus versus modular, it does seem like the market takes a very binary approach, right? It's either monolithic or, or modular. But I, I do think we'll live in a world where both will exist. And that can be a win-win for, for both systems. So if we look at the, the current state of uh, blockchain apps today, um, you have a couple hundred thousand, maybe a few million daily active users on chain. What happens when that number grows by 100x or 1,000x? Is there an architecture today that is perfectly optimized for the next several hundred million users of blockchains? I think the answer is, is actually no. I think this will take more and more uh, iterations and evolutions of the actual stack and architecture of these chains. So I think that's an important um, kind of context to, to provide. And we've seen that over the past couple of years, right? We all remember uh, the ICO boom um, you know, in 2017 and then in 2018, this whole new wave of layer ones and the the market structure of blockchains have changed drastically um, over the past few years alone. So I'm expecting substantial shift over the next next couple of years. So I'll paint just a super high level, I think, pros and cons for, for both sides and we can dive deeper into um, kind of each each side. So I think on the monolithic side, what's really clear right now, at least, is that it's just much easier to just start using as the average day user. 
right? So if you want to use Solana or Aptos or Sri or any more of these monolithic systems, you download a wallet, you're able to, to connect to a specific application, and you're pretty much connected to the entire ecosystem, the liquidity. It's a little bit more plug and play, right? And I think that also fits on the developer side as well. I don't have to pick which specific layer two or layer one I'm going to use, which bridge I need to move my um, assets over to, which layer two um, I need to use, and maybe the underlying security assumptions of that layer two. Um, so it's just much easier if you're a developer user to just immediately start using um, a monolithic chain. And I think today, at least, uh, the fees and throughput on many of the monolithic chains um, are substantially higher than some of the L2s and 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 you know Ethereum layer one itself, but with some caveats, right? You have to consider kind of decentralization, security, um, the value that's being settled, and also future you know, upgrades such as EIP four eight four four, which are starting to change the the fee and and scalability and scale drastically. So that I would say is is one of the pros on the on the monolithic side. I would say the downside to, to monolithic and, and where modular you know blockchains I think are, are really winning is again going back to my comment earlier. If you if we consider how early we are in the market cycle, which is a few million daily active users on chain. What happens when we have billions of, of users on chain? Blockchains are costing trillions, if not tens of trillions of, of dollars worth of value of real world assets, uh, crypto native assets, whatever it may be. Maybe they store information and storage on decentralized storage networks or, or file networks. When you have this massive ecosystem of value information, is the current stack today optimized for that future state? And one could make the argument that it's not, right? Um, each of these use cases, whether it's DeFi, whether it's uh, real-world assets, uh, decentralized social, payments, gaming, each of these individual ecosystems and, and applications may need specific application-level changes at the modular level that those developers and companies may want. And that will be abstracted away from the user, but you know, developers do value choice. And especially as we get to the stage of hundreds of millions or billions of users or trillions of dollars of, of value uh, settled on chain. And then as you think about you know, sustaining attacks from governments, from large companies. There's this massive honeypot in these blockchains and they need to be resilient. And so that's where I think the modular stack really starts to, to play out where you're giving developers more choice, right? If you want to make customizations at the VM level for privacy or for, or for ZK proofs, or maybe you're gaining a, you know, application, you want to make very specific um, changes to, to opcodes, right? If you want to make changes to the DA that you're, you're selecting or, or um, you know, uh, maybe you want to have uh, your layer two or your layer one KYC, right? So only certain uh, companies and, and, and users can come on board. So essentially there's a lot more customization that I think developers and, and users may actually want in the um, in the future. But yeah, let, let, let me pause there. I mean, I think the short answer is it's a little bit too early to say that monolithic or modular has won. We've we've made investments in, in both, but I think there's some really strong pros and cons and I'm happy to dive deeper uh, you know, into each. No, I really like that because, I mean, it's no surprise that these things have trade-offs and there's always going to be trade-offs. I think that goes for anything you do, right? But I think you have a good a good sense that one uh, positive of, of one side is actually the negative of the other. Like you have a lot of optionality when it comes to the modular thesis, but that optionality can actually work against you, especially if you're a developer who's trying to build fast and maybe like a lot of these choices aren't. Uh, you know, going to to improve that uh, necessarily. So I kind of like the way you you frame that. But do you think that there are sector specific kind of inclinations 
that kind of drive projects towards one versus the other? Like, do you think that, you know, we, we've seen kind of projects attract like both, like modular, the modular and a monolithic thesis. Um, but are you really seeing like kind of uh, momentum being driven towards one or the other? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, you know, every, every market cycle um, starting in 2017, it feels like there's, there's a pendulum, right? In 2017, it was all Ethereum. Then in 2018, 2019, a bunch of Ethereum killers came to market and it felt like the market pendulum swung to the other side in terms of developer and user interest. Then it was back to Ethereum and the DeFi summer happened and gas fees spiked on Ethereum. Then it went back to the alt layer one. So it, it does feel like the market as a whole is trying to figure out um, what, you know, what this is in, in, in real time, which I think is great for the space. So to answer your question directly, I think today there are definitely applications that benefit from building more in a monolithic environment versus a modular environment. So you look at the monolithic environment, um, you know, today, if you are really valuing, you know, composability, right? So maybe there are specific applications that you, for example, are a money market or a DEX, um, and you are reliant on hundreds or thousands of other assets across the ecosystem. Maybe you're plug if you're a DEX, maybe you're plugging into a, a money market to provide liquidity, maybe some of the liquidity goes um, for payments. Um, th there, there's a whole range of composable use cases that I think could start to break down in a more modular environment, right? So in a mo monolithic environment, in theory, if you have liquidity that's aggregated in one ecosystem end-to-end, -end, um, and then with that, a lot of the, the apps themselves can remain composable with that liquidity or user base or integrations with um, protocols without having to rely on you know different bridges or different L2s. There's a lot of value in having that in you know one specific kind of ecosystem, right? And then if you look on the the modular side, um, there's a lot of value in being able to to customize what's actually happening end to end. So if you look at you know DYDX, right? So they started off on, on Starknet and then moved over to build their own Cosmos chain, and you know now they're optimizing their whole trading infrastructure, their, their node infrastructure. Um, for trading um, specifically, which is really interesting. And that composability isn't broken per se because they don't need thousands of different assets to move over. They're relying on stable coins and oracles to kind of replicate and, and create the kind of uh, exposure to the assets that they want. So you don't lose that necessarily, um, that, that composability um, immediately. So I, I think it, it very much depends on a you know a couple of kind of core points, right? right? Do you need composability? Do you need uh, ties to specific liquidity or, or, or infrastructure? What security trade-offs are you are you okay taking? As I look at the the modular stack today, um, you know you are trusting sequencers. There's a number of bridges you may have to trust, and there is there are benefits to that though, right? So if you look at a at a project like like Kinto, so Kinto is building a a fully KYC uh, layer two on the Arbitrum stack, and what's unique about something like Kinto is every user. And developer is KYC, and that's encoded at the at the layer two level itself. So for you to actually come on board and start, you know, using a DeFi app or, or sending payments, you have to be KYC. And so, um, you know, this level of customization um, at the at the base layer itself is incredibly valuable um, for developers and users in the ecosystem. So I think it very much comes down to again some of these core points around composability, security, um, etc. But what is interesting is. I think developers are are not tied to specific you know ecosystems for the long term. They're still figuring this out in real time, uh, you know, as shown by protocols like DYDX. Yeah, I think I think that's a super interesting way of breaking things down. Now, I'm curious uh, when people look at monolithic versus modular, typically kind of Solana versus Ethereum. 
maybe one of the lazy ways of looking at it is that NFTs all on Solana because it's a mass market product and it's you kind of get quick finality. Was it one cent under one second? Is something that they're they're very they're kind of very proud of. Do you think it's that simple? If we were to fast forward ten years and we have, assuming it's not a one chain win all, and we have Ethereum and Solana and, and various others, do you think that you're going to have all the NFTs on one chain and then all the DeFi on another chain and all the real world assets on another chain, or, or is that just a slightly oversimplified view of what the world may look like? I, I think it's it's definitely possible, um, but I think today it doesn't seem like that's incredibly likely that you see all this aggregation um, on on one specific chain. Or instance, I I do think there are power laws. I don't think this is aggregated across a thousand different chains, but I, I don't think I think one chain is a little bit too difficult to underwrite at, at this at this moment. And so what you may see with Ethereum, for example, maybe some of the today some of the high value um, assets, whether you're settling a hundred million dollar trade. Or an RWA asset, which itself could be an NFT, may want to settle on something that's a little bit slower and maybe is, is seen as, as more secure and, and more decentralized um, in terms of its uptime, security, et cetera. And then something that may be low value, to your point on consumer applications, um, someone buying a $5 digital collectible may settle on you know, another chain. But again, I don't think it's I, you know, either or per se. I think it's, it's very much use case specific. Very cool. And... You mentioned uh, uh, kind of real world assets there. Um, I know that's a space that that you guys are interested in and, and have probably done some work. Can you kind of break that market down for us? Um, so in the in the prequel to this, there are a couple of stats you brought up that really really surprised me. So how, how are you thinking about real world assets on chain, and, and where is the focus? Where should we be keeping um, our interest at the moment? Yes. Yeah, so, so real world assets is. Um, uh, you know, I think one of the most interesting sectors in, in the crypto space right now, we've been actively deploying in this vertical for, for several years. Um, it all started off, I think, you know, in 2017, 2018 with security tokens and excitement around um, a lot of those tokenized assets back then. And now we have the actual infrastructure, whether it's stablecoin infrastructure, uh, scaling liquidity on chain to actually scale um, RWA specifically. So in the RWA space, depending on how you calculate uh, you know, your definition of RWA, which change you include, you're looking at a couple billion in, in TBL, and this has seen massive growth year to date. So you have around 750 to 800 million in, in tokenized treasuries, right? So as, as DeFi rates fell below real world rates, you started to see uh, this movement um, into tokenized treasuries, which are offering, you know, significant, you know, higher rates that are you know, offer better risk return. On top of that, you have gold, which is you know close to a billion in, in tokenized gold that's sitting on chain. You have private credit um, and asset-backed finance. You have some funds, you know, like KKR that have that have also tokenized um, and, and launched on chain. You have companies like Franklin Templeton, Hamilton Lane. Uh, you know, J.P. Morgan has a has their own uh, you know Onyx blockchain, um, which you know I think processes around once two billion dollars a day. Um, I think close to a trillion since since inception. Um, you have blockchains like Provenance, right, which are uh, more permissioned blockchains, um, which also has several billion of TBL um, tied to figure stock, but also HELOC, um, home equity line of credit. So I think what's what's interesting is we've moved from just stable coins being tokenized to a wide range of assets that are being tokenized. And the growth has been exponential over the past 12 to 18 months. And we expect that will, that will continue. Um, and what's been really interesting for, as an investor is there is a whole RWA stack that's emerged, right? So similar to what we saw in DeFi in terms of a whole stack or NFT and gaming, there's now a whole RWA stack that's emerged and several high quality companies that are building in that space. 
So I, I love this idea, but I think one of the pushbacks to this is that a lot of the tokenization is happening on private rails. And what we are trying to look for is that connection between private and public rails, like the tokenized treasuries you mentioned, many of them only available to like accredited investors, for example, like, you know, right. some of them, well, a majority of them are also offshore. They're non-U.S. citizens, for example, or you know, non-U.S. residents, for example. Um, so what is the path you see from getting this from private chains, which it makes sense, right? Like they, they need to have compliance friendly kind of vehicles. Um, so they often don't want to invite the scrutiny of being on a public chain rather than that. They'd rather just build it in-house. But what brings you to the public side of the equation? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple there's a couple of points there. So the one there is this overarching regulatory um, framework that, that needs to be established for institutions to actually transact on chain. I do think fortunately real world assets are in a much better position than DeFi assets, right? So crypto native assets, permissionless assets anyone can can access. You know, there's an open question of who can actually trade them, use them, you know, globally, depending on which jurisdiction you're in. So I do think there is a, a regulatory component. Fortunately, there's a lot more framework and guidance, I think, on the permissioned and real asset side, given you have existing securities laws um, to use for that. So that's, I think, you know, one component. Then there's more on the, you know, technology side itself. So these large institutions, instead of kind of waiting around for, for that perfect clarity in terms of where they can build, where they can, where they can operate, they have to start somewhere. And so if you look at the provenance blockchains, the JP Morgans of the world, them starting um, on the private blockchain, and th these aren't new projects, they've been around for years, is actually quite bullish for the vertical as a whole. You start in a more centralized private setting, you, you understand some of the nuances around building on blockchains, uh, composability, de developer tooling, infrastructure, et cetera. And then when there's a little bit more clarity, whether on the regulatory side, on the product side, you're now able to move into more of a, a permissionless environment. But I, I do think there are some challenges of, of launching, you know, RWA and tokenized assets in a truly permissionless manner, like Uniswap, right? I don't, you know, can anyone that's not KYC'd or anyone in the world access a, a certain, you know, security or tokenized asset? I, you know, there, there may be issues with that, right? And so maybe this hybrid, to your point, is instead of waiting for all these, you know, permissioned private assets to be freely available on, on Uniswap or on any layer one, maybe there's a middle ground where there are KYC'd or identity-based, you know, uh, ecosystems, whether it's a Kinto or Provenance that are more KYC, or, or even on Coinbase uh, base itself, which with its ID product, where only certain users at the smart contract level can access these products. So if you have capital on chain, you're trading on chain, you're, you're uh, maybe using a decentralized social network, you're using a DeFi product, you can still access these products, um, you know, depending on whether you're accredited, whether you're a qualified purchaser, whether you've been KYC'd in a certain jurisdiction, but that's at the smart contract level. And an identity now becomes this base layer that allows for composability of assets you know, globally. Interesting. Yeah, we, we had um, a, a lunch with uh, MC from Uniswap last week, and she was talking about V4 um, and some of the things that you can do around that with hooks, such as KYC pools of liquidity, um, exactly. which I think... Yeah, I think, I think when we, once we have a little more clarity, will be a, an area of growth for them. I'm, I'm curious, like if we look to 2024 now, 23 was a big year for RWAs. Um, we can kind of laugh. It was, an, it was a narrative in 2017, 18. We've kind of been there, done that. Uh, this time, I think just from the stats that you mentioned, it feels like it's getting some real traction. But I'm curious, looking at 2024 with the tailwind that we've got right now like what are some of the ways that you think this space will continue to develop in the next 12 months yeah so i think tokenized treasuries are 
um, a great gateway to get more assets in. So if we're sitting in the US, we may ask ourselves, why does someone want to buy a tokenized treasury? You can go to a brokerage, right? But that's not the case for the 130 billion of stable coins that are sitting on chain, the vast majority of which is earning either zero yield or earning a yield less than you know treasuries, right? So there's already a massive market that's untapped that could move into, you know, essentially allocating to tokenized treasuries. And the powerful component of that is once you're in the uh, tokenized treasuries world, we think there will be a whole new suite of other products to allocate to, right? Whether it's gold, there's private credit, um, asset-backed financing, emerging market debt. Um, there's, there's, you know, we can go into all these different, different verticals, real estate. And so these verticals now feel real. Um, there's actual products, actual liquidity and actual traction. Um, and so we do think the tokenized treasuries component will serve as a gateway to get some of those additional, uh, you know, get exposure to to additional assets. Um, I, I do think right now is what's really positive is you look at the number of banks, whether it's central banks, private banks, large companies exploring the the tokenization of blockchain space. I mean, you see McKinsey and Bank of America, they're all putting out these massive 50, 100 page reports on tokenization, covering in depth the value of tokenization. So I think you know, the market and ecosystem is really starting to wake up the value of, of, of tokenization verbal assets. And I think what maybe the market and the ecosystem got wrong in 2017 and 2018 was, hey, just because you tokenize something doesn't mean things are automatically liquid and valuable. But what's changed now is you have the liquidity on chain, you have the infrastructure on the scaling side. And the, the most valuable component from my perspective of tokenization is programmability. So now we're seeing a whole new range of programmable use cases. Um, emerge, whether it's on payments, on treasuries, on, on asset-back financing, whatever it may be. And that's where we think we see you know, the, the next big unlock is what are these programmable uh, use cases of tokenized assets? That's where you start to see a zero to one improvement over the existing financial stuff. Yeah, I think if 2023 is going to be known for anything, it's the resurgence of all these themes that a lot of people assumed had just been, you know, gone to the wayside. And I think tokenization is one of them, right? Like, I think the idea that, you know, and, and to be fair, so many things had to line up to get us to that point. I think one of the reasons that, you know, it didn't pick up back in 2017 was also because it was so new and it took time for people to understand it better. One of those areas is also like deepen or decentralized physical infrastructure. And, you know, we kind of talked about mm -hmm. this before, but I think that's one where a lot of people like dismissed um, Helium, for example, and kind of cr criticized that project and then kind of criticized the whole deepen movement as a whole. But now we're starting to see that come back. Um, I, I love kind of get your thoughts on, you know, what's driving this movement. Uh, where do you see the future for it? Yeah, absolutely. So deepen. um, which is, I think, one of the more crypto-native use cases, and it's a use case that I'm incredibly excited about, um, essentially using these token networks and crypto rails to incentivize some off-chain or real-world behavior, right? So with Helium, for example, uh, users are paid the HNT token to set up hotspots, which then power a network, 5G network, IoT network, wh whatever it may be. Um, and so this use case was incredibly powerful uh, starting in, in, in 2021. And, and frankly, Bitcoin is one of the OG or native deepens, right? You were paid to run, uh, you know, computers and provide uh, um, network uh, power to the network uh, to validate transactions, right? And then over the years, that same model has now been explored, which is can you use tokens to incentivize some specific behavior? And so I think in 2020 and 2021, Deepin was really seen as uh, an experiment, a POC. You had companies like Helium that really scaled on the supply side, but the demand side was still missing. 
What's changed now in the past 12 to 18 months is you're seeing a next generation of deepened protocols come to market that aren't fully reliant on the token side to scale, right? And what I mean by that is they may have a you know, off-chain native product or demand that's also tied in to the crypto component as well. So I think in the next 6, 12, 18 months of, of, of Deepin, you'll start to see more verticals uh, emerge within, within Deepin. And what's really exciting there is we'll take the learnings of the previous cycle, specifically around token distributions and emissions, and use that uh, to drive a lot more value. So protocols in 2020 and 2021, you know, they may have allocated too many tokens to early contributors, right? And you had this vicious cycle where as the price went up, people were incentivized to do something and the price went down um, and suddenly people weren't incentivized to do something. But now in this next iteration of deepened protocols, you're seeing companies restructure the way they're they're giving away tokens, right? So maybe there is a time lock component. Maybe they explore a fleet model, right? So instead of going after every single user to perform some type of action, maybe you go after fleets, right? More sophisticated users, you can structure more bespoke deals to scale uh, to scale the network, right? Maybe you're very maniacal and thoughtful around what is the dollar amount of tokens you're giving away and what is the ROI on that? If we use a traditional software metric, you may you may view that as CAC versus LTV, right? So how on the CAC side, how much are you spending from a dollar uh, perspective, whether it's tokens, cash, whatever it may be, to get some additional user on the network or additional node in the network? And then in, 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 you know, for paying that, what are you getting in terms of value? So you're starting to see just a whole new way of evaluating uh, the deep end ecosystem, how projects launch their tokens, scale their networks. And um, we think this is going to usher in a much more healthy and sustainable, you know, deep end ecosystem. That makes a ton of sense. I'm curious. So we've we've got obviously Helium and then there's HiveMapper and Demo and and you've even got deep in around AI compute. So kind of render and various others. Okay. Which are the ones that you're most excited about into into 24? Yeah, so I, I do think Helium is remains quite quite interesting. I, I think the, uh, you know, I would say the market and maybe the ecosystem is so focused on what happened in, in 2021 and in 2020. But what's really interesting now is now they've launched the the 5G and mobile component. They're live in Miami and and uh, I think coming live into a few other markets. That's incredibly powerful, right? So you you've spent all of these all this time and, and energy scaling on the supply side, and now you're ready to really scale up the you know the the demand side. So I think. You know, Helium continues to be incredibly interesting. Hive Mapper, you know, has mapped something like ten percent of the world's roads. Um, they're continuing to scale their their ecosystem, and I think it's actually quite impressive if you consider again going back to what I was talking about LTV on CAC, uh, the amount of tokens they've distributed, the value they've given to actually acquire you know the ten percent um, of the of the world's roads. Protocols like Arweave on the storage side are actually quite quite interesting and. There's a lot of angles on, on the DA as well. Uh, you know, maybe potentially some of these storage networks acting as DA. So, you know, I, it's it's quite positive to see all of these you know different verticals um, you know c- come to market. And I think what's been most exciting is just this change in you know the token economics and, and the emission schedule. So I, I feel like all these projects tend to benefit from the same sources, which is we need liquidity, right? We need liquidity in the space, and that kind of brings up the idea of stable coins, which play a very unique role in our ecosystem, but it's starting to broaden out. Like it's really starting to touch the real world economy in a lot of ways. And I think that's why we're starting to see more like regulatory frameworks around this uh, coming up. Um, I mean, what are you seeing as far as the landscape for stable coins? Uh, you know, do you see this changing, gearing more towards payments, like adding on yield? Like 
where where do you think the volume is going? Like, there's just so much to the space. Totally. Yeah, I think I think stable coins um, is probably outside of Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and some of the base layer is probably the vertical that has undeniably reached some level of product market fit, right? So stable coins, you know, really started to really launched in you know 2018 from the USDC side. Tether was was obviously earlier. Really started to take off during during DeFi summer. And what's been interesting o- over the past couple of years is there's been a lot of focus on the market cap of stablecoins, which sit at you know around 130 billion, but a little bit less focus on what's actually happening at the transaction or uh, blockchain. What are people actually doing with stablecoins today? So stablecoins did um, you know close to 11 trillion in, in volume in, in 2022, not that far away from you know Visa. PayPal did 1.6 trillion in volume, so substantially past. PayPal and, and you know several other networks as well um, in a very short period of time, right? In just a couple of years, stablecoins have done that. And what's also fascinating about that those those data points is this is a, off a small base of users, right? You're talking about a couple hundred thousand DAOs, a um, couple million probably at peak that are actively using stablecoins today, and yet we saw massive massive volume. So stablecoins, I think, are in, in a very good position um, for for additional adoption. But as we take you know, we go one level deeper on what the, what the volume actually looks like. What's interesting is to see some of these emerging market use cases where, you know, stablecoins may actually be much be a much bigger opportunity, right? In the U.S., whenever I talk about stablecoins, people always say, hey, we have Venmo. Right? But even Venmo itself has a number of issues, right? It may take several days to settle. Uh, there are limits on how much you can send. Cross-border payments, a huge opportunity for stablecoins. I think the average, uh, you know, remittance fee is anywhere between 3 and 7% just to send money. Uh, globally, right? And that may vary depending on which country you are, how many banks you have to go through, what merchants you're using, whether you're going into cash on the other side. Um, and then talk about the time it takes to actually settle that. I mean, this may take several days to a few weeks, again, depending on where you're actually sending money to versus in the stable coins, it can cost cost a fraction of a cent. Uh, you get the, you know, the, the stable coins immediately and, and you actually own those stable coins, right? They're not held um, with some merchant or bank or, you know, you actually own those, those stable coins natively. So, there, there's some really interesting emerging market use cases that we've been tracking. So you look at USDT in Argentina, you look at USDT in Tron, or sorry, in, in, in Turkey. And a lot of those volumes are interestingly enough on Tron versus Ethereum. So if you look at Tron's annualized volume, it's doing anywhere between you know three and a half and five trillion in, in annualized volume. That that's that's incredible when you think about um, the volume that Tron that USDT is doing on Tron versus versus Ethereum. So USDT is doing more volume on Tron than Ethereum, and that could be driven by changes like Binance, market makers in Asia, and of course these emerging market um, use cases. So that's a that's a really interesting dynamic that you know we've been paying attention to. And then you look at the number of uh, kind of stablecoin focused apps that are making it super easy to send money. There's you know, Sling and, and Beam. There's there's Juno. There's Tiplink, and so. It's actually much easier to send stablecoins today. We have the scalability. There's liquidity. Um, so yeah, there, there's there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll, I'll pause there and we can dive into you know anything specific. Amazing. We'd love to dive into the consumer side of things. So you mentioned Venmo. Uh, I, I'm in the US now. I was originally from the UK, and that was one of the first apps I downloaded just to kind of pay people five bucks here or five bucks there or whatever. Um, and I, and I, I guess what I love about it is that. It's a network that encourages you others to join the network because of the utility increases as more of your friends have it, et cetera. So when when I think about ways of how we can help crypto grow and uh, just expand the number of people with a wallet on their phone and with an ability to send and receive crypto, uh, do you see consumer applications like that as kind of having a good shot of helping the whole industry grow from a 
kind of more retail and consumer perspective? I, I think in the U.S., there just isn't as much of a of a dire need to go to stable coins, right? If you have credit cards and debit cards, cash, um, you have you know apps like Venmo and, and Zelle and Cash App. I don't think the user is screaming to run over and use stable coins, right? There are some inefficiencies, right? Whether it's the time it takes to settle the cost, there definitely are some inefficiencies there. But when you compare that with potentially the non-US um, opportunity, whether it's emerging market, cross-border payments, remittances, that to me feels like a, a much bigger opportunity. But to, to, to answer your question directly in, in the US, the value of stable coins is not just, hey, you may save a little bit of money, it may settle a little bit quicker, it's really, again, the, the programmability, right? So people talk about Venmo, they talk about Zelle, they talk about even FedNow disrupting stablecoins, right? FedNow system that's being rolled out by the Fed to settle, uh, you know, wires and, and, and bank transfers and, and uh, immediately. But you can't program on top of FedNow. You can't program on top of UPI per se in India versus stablecoins allow anyone to program applications, right? So whether it's, uh, you know, recurring payments or, payments from a company sharing value to its 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 shareholders, right? Or a lot of these, uh, you know, deepened protocols, if you have to pay contributors. I mean, there's so many crypto native use cases and web two and real world native use cases that can benefit from programmable payments. And what that means is that reduces the number of intermediaries and costs and inefficiencies in the system. So I, I do think the adoption of stable coins look very different in the US than say in emerging markets. But the overarching theme that I think is the most powerful component of stablecoins is, is programmability. Amazing. Do you think there's any other opportunities that uh, you think we're missing in the in the crypto space? I, I know that in the past we've spoken about like uh, prediction markets and things like that. Anything uh, anything we didn't cover? Sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, you know, Augur, there's V1 and, and V2 for, for those who are around then. Um, Augur V1, uh, I think initially launched with, with ETH as the as a settlement currency, which is super volatile and difficult to use, obviously, if you're betting, you know, a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks, the scalability was wasn't there. It was very expensive to actually use Augur. I was just trying to run this order book and all this complexity in, in terms of running this on chain. Some issues around settlement. There was some subjectivity. So Augur had, I think, the vision was incredibly exciting, but there were a number of known risks and challenges where there's liquidity, the infrastructure, the costs. Um, that didn't allow it to, to really scale. And now you're seeing a next generation of protocols that really take this to the level, whether it's you know, Polymarket, for example, um, which has done you know, several hundred million of volume. Its election markets are one of the most liquid markets there are to actually bet and trade uh, on the election. And you'll, you'll notice Polymarket, just using that as an example, is actually quoted in mainstream media for you know, different stories and, and topics in terms of how does the market actually perceive a specific event playing out, right? There isn't a web to, uh, you know, company and protocol that is as liquid and as, as scalable as something like, like Polymarket. So, you know, why are we in a different state today? Well, you have infrastructure like stable coins that make it very easy to actually bet in small size or large size on prediction markets. You have scalability, right? So it's actually easier to put a larger number of bets um, on chain. You have AMMs and order book innovations that depending on the size and the market structure of the prediction market, you may actually want to use an AMM, and that could be more of a V3 or V4, uh, Uniswap V3 or V4 type curve, or something that's more of an order book system. You have RFQ systems coming online for, for uh, prediction markets. And I think most importantly, you have broader awareness and adoption of prediction markets. 
um, which, you know, for the elections, for example, prediction markets are one of the most powerful indications of, you know, where stand, candidates stand in, in real time. So, so look, looking at a polymarket, um, how accurate do you think some of these markets are relative to the, the kind of correct theoretical probabilities? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question because it, de- it really depends on what your definition of what is correct. Like something pre-settlement, like what is actually seen as the source of truth, right? So if the if we're looking at the market on the election, it's predicting who's actually going to win the primary, who's going to win the, the presidential election, what is considered the source of truth? Is it the polls, which are one way of looking at it? They have their own flawed representation, um, right in terms of how they collected it, the, the data, verify the data, the sample size, all of that. Is it potentially media? Right, that saying that hey, this candidate's not doing that well, this candidate's doing better, or is it a, a a market where people have to put money where their mouth is, and there is a level of a volume, and that all of this is taking in kind of real time data. So, I think it's quite powerful to have a real time market that's able to collect insights on the world, take those insights and information, and then allow market participants who have their own unique areas of expertise to make bets on on those specific verticals. So. You know, it's. I think moving forward, it'll probably be a combination of of everything, right? It won't be that, hey, you know, media is completely right or wrong, or maybe these polls are right or wrong, or maybe something like polymarket's right or wrong. Is polymarket just adds another dimension to what's actually seen as a truth or what the market or you know society feels about a specific topic. Very cool. Um, we'll certainly be checking out Poly Market a little more, um, and uh, especially out of the elections and, and all other things worth uh, keeping an eye on. Um, and then thank you so much for that. Um, a really broad ranging conversation with a ton of interesting insights um, and a lot for, for us to think on. So uh, thank you so much for joining. Hope you stay with us for the rest of the call. Um, and uh, yeah, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks so much, guys. That was fun. Thank you so much, Anjan. We covered a broad range of topics there, and I love the detail that you can go into across such a broad range. It's, it's fantastic. Um, I hope you'll stay with us for the rest of the show, and thank you so much for joining. Now, George, over to you for a market update. It's been a pretty good week, I think. So uh, what's yeah, what's what's been happening? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, definitely a very exciting week with uh, Bitcoin now around 42,600. Uh, so it's up around 13% uh, over the last seven days. After we spent a good couple of weeks consolidating um, around 35 to 38K, um, that range, obviously, um, MicroStrategy announcing that they've been uh, restarting buying larger amounts uh, again has helped and, and then planning uh, additional equity issuance as well. Um, but I think there are other aspects as well that uh, came into play here. So obviously, um, a good amount of liquidations above a 40K, uh, which was a very important psychological uh, level um, in fact, the highest since the lunar collapse uh, in um, May 22. I think um, other things that played into this were DLI gamma positions, um, which also created uh, forced buyers, uh, so to speak. Um, but you know, having said that, obviously, I think it's important to bear in mind that there's a lot of euphoria now, and that's not to say that you know we, we can't just keep rallying. Um, but you can also see that in the funding rates. I was checking a couple of venues yesterday. Um, that were offshore and um, you were getting funding rates in Bitcoin around 70% um, on, on some of these venues. So the big question is, you know, how sustainable is this uh, rally in uh, the short term? Uh, interestingly, actually, um, in ETH, uh, the funding when Bitcoin was hitting 70% or so uh, was significantly lower, around 30 to 40% range. Yeah, interesting. I mean, in, in, when you're talking to clients, George, you, do you get the sense that they are 
kind of starting to think about moving out on the risk curves. So obviously, a, a big run in BTC and ETH. Um, funding rates are high. Typically, these are things that we see when the market starts to heat up a little bit. And, and the next potentially logical step is to go to some of the longer tail stuff further out on the risk curve. Um, are people doing that now or is it still a bit too early? I think it is slowly starting, but I think there's definitely a stark difference between what institutions are doing and what you can see uh, in, the, in the retail segment. I think um, Greg actually had this interesting chart, you know, that shows you the breakdown of um, uh, volume, dominance of volume traded by, by asset um, in, in one of the last calls. And um, the broader exchange, I think, uh, we now obviously sort of, whereas in the summer, ETH and Bitcoin were maybe... 90%, 90%, maybe a little bit higher even um, of, of overall volume traded. I think that's definitely moved down to 70-ish range. Um, so obviously, I think that's more more so on the retail side. Now, on the institutional side, uh, we can see that, um, that tendency as well, um, that you do have a lot more interest in altcoins. Um, but I think, uh, you know, given the lessons from the last bull market, um, Generally, people are a little bit more cautious and um, a lot more conscious of uh, liquidity and position sizing, um, etc. But I think uh, it, it is slowly starting for sure. Yeah, so it's only cautious for now. We'll see what happens in Bitcoin at seventy k. But no, no, I'm I'm hundred percent with you. Um, that's fantastic, George. Any any other news that you've been keeping an eye on or, or things that have jumped out at you? Yeah, so um, I mean, st staying with that altcoin versus Bitcoin and ETH topic, um, BTC and ETH uh, combined market cap dominance um, is at seventy two percent now, and it looks like we're so it's a local high there. Looks like we're headed higher um, because obviously, on the one hand, you have that uh, ETF narrative, which is you know quite strong growth for Bitcoin and, and, and ETH in particular, and, and also from the macro side, um, it's, it's become more attractive with, um, I think, roughly 150 basis points uh, worth of hikes priced in in the US until end of Jan 2025. Um, now, to put that into context, if we look at the highs of the previous bull market in terms of the, the combined um, dominance from of, of BTC and ETH, we were at 87% in Jan 2021 last time. Um, obviously, there's um, a lot more projects out there right now and a lot more projects um, that have, I would say, very high potential and with very strong engineering teams behind it. Uh, so I would probably struggle to see it going as high again. Um, but having said that, it, it, just given these narratives for the time being in the short to medium term, I would not be surprised to see that number grow from 72% uh, uh, at the moment. Um, and obviously, until after that, at some point, uh, I guess we will see uh, larger scale uh, rotations into altcoins. But on the other hand, um, obviously, you do have some examples already um, where we can see these capital rotations. So um, Stacks is, has been a popular one over the last couple of months and last couple of weeks in particular as well, uh, where you always tend to see, you know, when, when Bitcoin starts to consolidate and, and um, may, maybe sell off or um, a, a little bit in, in the shorter term, um, you see this rotation to Stacks. So that's up 77% uh, over a week. And then uh, Celestia is actually another example that did very well. So that's up 45% on the week. Um, Obviously launched at the um, at a very opportune uh, moment uh, in terms of um, where, where the market or, or the market cycle stands, um, and obviously also plays into this popularity of uh, modular versus uh, monolithic chains currently. Yeah, I have to say I think the Celestia launch is probably one of the, the best launches uh, I've seen. Uh, now, obviously, you you point out very correctly the market maybe helped out a little bit there, but that's still uh, I found that very very impressive. 
Yeah, 100%. De- definitely agreed, I think. Um, although, I mean, you know, uh, m- maybe we're also a little bit biased after one and a half years of, of bear market. <laughs> so, But I, I, I do agree with you. That was a great launch. Yeah, we've, we forgot what green looked like. <laughs> but uh, yeah, glad, glad it's back. That's great. Thank you very much for that rundown, George. David, over to you for some macro. Yeah, thanks, Ben. So it seems like a lot of banks actually are pushing back against the rally we've seen in uh, risk assets like equities. And, you know, you've seen like Goldman, City, Morgan Stanley all kind of saying that we've actually had a decent run up. And, you know, now the market is over its skis on expectations about the Fed uh, rate cuts. You know, I'm not necessarily in that same camp. Like I'm still fairly constructive about uh, the rest of the year. But I certainly think that we already had quite a uh, decent rally, but it's still going to be contingent on the economic data itself. And we've got the non-farm payrolls number coming out this week, retail sales coming out this week. Um, I think there's still the inflation print. So I think all this matters to kind of lead up to what the Fed is going to do on December 15th, but also kind of what's going to happen over the next few months. Like, I I very much do believe that we're now done with uh, rate hikes and very likely the next move from the Fed is going to be cuts. But it doesn't necessarily need to be in, like immediate, right? It doesn't need to happen like uh, this month or next month. Like I think uh, very likely we will see that probably start in second quarter, probably more towards the second, the end of the second quarter of 2024. Um, and, you know, the Fed itself uh, is probably just going to remain on the sidelines just because, We've already heard from like Chris Waller, who I think is uh, really important as far as, you know, transmitting the signal for what the Fed kind of believes and what the Fed's going to do, which was followed up by Jay Powell last week, who kind of kind of confirmed it that for the most part, uh, we're, we're OK in the economy. You know, we're in a disinflationary environment now. Um, growth is not stalling, but it's not rising terribly like if we kind of stay in this place that is the go to lock scenario and i think that that can continue doesn't mean that first quarter 2024 may not present its own set of challenges and i've kind of enumerated those on this uh, podcast before uh but i think for the time being we're still in that nice kind of sweet spot and i think that we have room to continue even if the magnitude might not be as as high as it was in the last few weeks so, so, David, a lot of uh, market commentators are, are saying that markets are kind of priced to perfection at this point. Um, and as you mentioned, we've got a lot of data coming up. What do you think happens if we get a, a data point which is conceived as negative for the market? Does does crypto run its own race or does it potentially get brought down with uh, traditional markets? Well, that's the interesting thing that we've seen with crypto markets, uh, especially over this weekend when we saw like Bitcoin break into just like new levels that were just uh, definitely caught me by surprise, but I think caught many people by by surprise. Um, And that's juxtaposed against what happened in traditional risk assets like equities, which actually didn't do as well. So, you know, like my thesis has been that the last two weeks has actually been driven more by macro sentiment and just the positive macro sentiment that uh, people have had with regards to this easier monetary policy environment that we could be in. But it does seem that crypto has its own idiosyncratic momentum here um, that's driving it up compared to like the you know modest grinding to downside that we've seen in equity markets very recently. So I think that part of that's the ETF expectations. But I think that there's 
there's very much its own story. Um, and you can kind of fill that in on, on what you think that's going to be. Um, and, you know, there, there's kind of elements of the gold story in terms of the store of value, like relative to um, like, like, like lower rates in the U.S., for example, things like that, that I think are playing into this. Um, but certainly I think it can carry its own weight here. Great. And, and what about any kind of crypto specific factors we should be looking out for? Um, obviously, the ETF is a big one. We probably don't need to cover that. But anything else you're keeping an eye on? You know, so we've said it on this podcast before, but it's not just the ETF narrative, but it's the ETF narrative alongside all the other things. And the macro isn't divorced from that, right? Like, I, I think we get pushback sometimes when people who are saying, like, well, if the macro is relevant, then, then you know, what is, like, a, a, a token like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency? And I'm saying, like, we, we live in this world, you know, so we, we still depend on like driving the narrative of what Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies are as far as, OK, these are things with a fixed supply schedule, which are really relevant when we're talking about looking for alternatives in the world um, due to, say, a you know regional banking crisis in the U.S. or turmoil in the geopolitical universe. Like, I think these things are, are these things matter. So that's the framework on which I also look at things like the having are things where I, where I look at like uh, potential like changes in the ecosystem from a like uh, monolithic to a modular thesis or maybe the competition between modular and mo monolithic. Like I think all these things are playing out right now because we're getting closer and closer to not just store value uh, significance from a financial kind of framework, but also the technological kind of aspects of like the next use case, which I think we're starting to get to and may be looking at in 2024. Very cool. Yeah, I, I, a lot, a lot to be excited about for 2024. I, I'm certainly very, very excited um, to see what what the next year brings us. Um, thanks so much, David. Appreciate that color as always. And uh, that is a wrap for today. A big thank you to Anjan, to David, and to George and the fantastic production team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. All statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording. This recording is only intended for sophisticated investors. This recording should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as a giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.